This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. Party people, small change, Jim Deere, whatever you remember, it doesn't really matter, does it? It's just the name, people, as is the name of this podcast, Stark Reality. Yet another episode, I know, slowly cranking them out, you know, sue me, I I moved recently and, uh, well, not recently, I'm just, you know, inundated. But anyways, let's roll the red carpet out to Brooklyn, not too far, and my homegirl Jessica Lipsky, who is a fellow uh, ex-Californian who has been out in New York for a while. She's an editor and reporter covering uh, culture, politics, and music. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Newsweek, Salon, Billboard, Wax Poetics, LA Weekly, SF Weekly, and the San Francisco Chronicle. She's currently the senior editor of the Recording Academy's Grammy.com website. And uh, what we're going to be focusing on today is her award-winning book, It Ain't Wet Retro, Daptone Records and the 21st Century Soul Revolution. Talking about badass folks like Sharon Jones, Charles Bradley, The Frighteners, Daptones, Antibalis, Gabe Roth, Neil Sugarman, and the general evolution of 90s, Zeros, Revival Funk and Soul Music, and Slodies, aka Ballads. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Budo's band, who I didn't really get into too much in this interview, but, uh, you know, love them as well. Reading her book was a real pleasure. She captured a lot of that scene and the personalities involved. And uh, she's written for a number of publications, as mentioned, has a Harvey Averne interview, overview coming out in the New York Times soon. Jessica also DJs under the name Terry Dactyl. She's done radio on KUSF, KPU, and a number of CD establishments on both sides of this country. And so, of course, gives us a very funky and soulful playlist to accompany of some current faves. So Jessica Lipsky, talking about her book, It Ain't Retro, Daptone Records, here on Stark Reality. Enjoy. Well, yeah, it's a, it was a nice trip. Nice. Yeah. I also met a, a woman leaving from Crete to Santorini. Um, we ended up traveling together for five days, only to find out that she was a creationist. And um, what is a creationist? (laughs) um, She believes that um, uh, evolution did not happen. Okay, I was just going to say, is it kind of like the hardcore evangelical? Like the the, the world is what, five or six thousand years old or whatever. Yes. And and that's exactly how I found out we were um, (laughs) my birthday. We were in this cave on like an island and I'm like geeking out because there's like a bazillion like like 400 steps or something to get to the like bottom of this cave and i'm reading a pamphlet and it says like you know 
it took you know, 80 to 150 years for one um, centimeter of this cave to develop. That means it's like a million bazillion years old. Isn't that so cool? And she's like, yeah, I mean, if you believe the world is a million bazillion years old. And um, and I was like, well, so do I jump off of this platform or do I throw her off of the platform? <laughs> and, <laughs> and then um, I'm like, how old do you believe the world is? And she's like, about 3,000 years and um then i like went back through like our conversations for the past five days and was like oh that's why this wasn't uh this wasn't clicking and all of this stuff and it turns out even worse she's montana's youngest state representative she was 22 and in state congress probably passing anti-trans laws or something you know oh and anti-abortion laws as well um she probably has like. So that's crazy left. being a 22 year old woman passing anti-abortion laws. That's kind of a mind fuck, you know. I know, but there are there are people out there like that, and it's it's fucking crazy. I tried to look her up actually. I mean, this was like seven years ago. Um, uh, yeah, you know I, what? Go oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna. Well, my friend used to do this found sound show on uh, WFMU. This guy, Michael mm -hmm. Poole, who passed away a few years ago, but it was called The Audio Kitchen, I think. And basically, mm -hmm. the whole show was uh, found answering machine tapes and, like, when people used to record stuff at the beginning of, like, you know, like, when tapes came out in the 70s, it was, like, this whole novel thing that you could just record yourself. So people made, yeah. like, audio letters and sent it to each other and you would find them in thrift stores, you know, you would find oh, cool. like, 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 like Salvation Army. They would just if someone died, they would fucking sell everything or if they clean. Right. So, you know, if you go through, especially if you looked at some of the older blank cassettes that had like a certain look to them and mm -hmm. they were blank, he would bring like a Walkman and he had other friends looking for him. And so what's funny is he found like random answer machine tapes of some people that sometimes were really nasty from like mm. the 70s and 80s and then he would found like mm -hmm. one of them like years later on his linkedin profile and it was like he had tapes from this guy like many years ago of course he didn't contact him but it's like yeah it's just kind of funny to be like where are these people now oh shit they're still alive <laughs> you know? they're still doing their thing you know wow very cool. I love that. It's like when you go and you find um, uh, like old photos of people at a flea market or something. Yeah, but it's just uh, the concept of uh, even with the with the the concept of onlineness is that you can actually sometimes actually find these people. You know, mm -hmm. it's like oh, I have your answering machine tapes from the late 70s when you were chewing out your girlfriend you know because like when you like pick up the, the phone you know and then it records the conversation like the old school answer machine answer machine if you picked up the phone while like if you if you're like hi this is blah 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 and then you pick up the phone it would record the whole conversation oh interesting yeah like in yeah. terms of uh, answer so that's how sometimes you would be able to actually get conversations from an answering machine tape you know, mm. if you picked it up while it was recording. Anyways, blah, blah, blah. We have we have to talk about other things that are retro, but not retro. Yes, indeed. Um, I did find the girl <laughs> I put it in the chat, but 
afterwards. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll follow up and, and see what this wonderful state representative is doing these days. But let's talk about you, Jessica. How are you, first of all? I am okay. I got a great night's sleep last night, so I'm I'm feeling like I can conquer the world. Yeah, that's something I don't know. I have a lot of issues with sleep. I, I can't seem to get like a steady... I, I'm lucky if I get five or six hours. I just keep getting interrupted, and then it, it does kind of like make you... I don't know, a little loopy. miserable. <laughs> Not miserable, but you know, I, um, definitely I also... lacking energy. So I'm trying to work on that. I feel the same. I have a problem getting to sleep, but last night I I did it right for whatever reason, and then I had dreams that I was trying to hook up with Bad Bunny and with Seth Rogen. Um, so I don't know what my mind is is doing, but all to say, pretty all right today. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, like Bad Bunny is the re request uh, du jour of the moment. He is sort of the Madonna of the 90s, where you literally, anytime someone requests, I'd say 80 to 90% of the time it's Bad Bunny, which I think he's kind of been, now he's almost like a joke to DJs. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. It's not really Bad Bunny's fault. I mean, his music is not horrible. I mean, it's pop music. It's, you know, some of it's better than others, but then you start to learn to hate Bad Bunny because you have all these random, annoying people coming up requesting him. So, you know, Bad Bunny, it's not your fault, but yes, it's very annoying. We know he's listening right now. I mean, I, I, I don't hate Bad Bunny, um, but I think he's like the Lady Gaga of the 2020s. Um, maybe to, to bring it up a little more contemporary, less less retro. <laughs> <laughs> Though you taught you 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 uh, are a DJ as well. I think I met you at a beauty bar, right? When you were spinning with Drew and a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I met I met some really nice people that um, that night. Met our friend Salam. That's yeah, Salam as well. Yeah, shouts to Miss Hap. Um, yes, and um, maybe my friend Spencer uh, as well. Crayola Danger. Um, but yeah, I've been DJing for. I like um, maybe 15 years at this point, maybe a little bit less. I started on the radio in San Francisco at KUSF um, when I was in college and um, then, you know, started getting into DJing at bars once I was mostly legal and have, have never stopped. And uh, but I, you're also known as a writer. And uh, I mean, you're from the Bay Area, right? So how, how did I, you end up in uh, New York? Um, well, both of my parents are New Yorkers, and um, my folks would ship me out to my grandparents in Yonkers um, every summer, basically from when I was eight um, until maybe about like 14. Um, so it was always a dream to come out here and live here. Um, so after I graduated college, or a few years after I graduated college, I was tired of living in the Bay, and I got a job out in New York. And since then, I've had a series of jobs. Um, I'm a professional journalist, um, and I've been doing that for, gosh, since uh, 2010, um, maybe a little bit before that. Um, so I've been out here working, hustling ever since. Yeah, and I mean, I think what's kind of cool is you, you know, just talking about what we're talking about, because you wrote a whole book on uh, the Daptone label. I did. And I did. which, you know, for people who don't know, it's like Sharon Jones. I don't know the whole slew of people. I mean, we could get into it in a bit. But um, 
the name of the book is It Ain't Retro, even though obviously they're kind of a revival label in a lot of ways. Um, but you kind of grew up in that scene, like sort of in the sort of uh, soul ska scene. I definitely did. Um, I often think about what would happen if I were maybe like five to 10 years older or had a fake ID a little bit sooner. Um, because in San Francisco, there was definitely a big uh, soul scene, mod scene for a long time, as well as a big skinhead reggae scene. Um, so it was popular a little bit before I was of age or really popular a little bit before I was of age. So um, when I was old enough to know better, I was going to a lot of soul nights, um, collecting records, seeing bands, um, like folks on Daptone and um, and others come through town. And it was just like a shot of electricity um, through me. Uh, I grew up listening to a lot of oldies radio and a lot of soul. And I'd always wanted um, to see like live music, contemporary artists doing this stuff that sounded like what I grew up hearing, but you know, had, had no access to see because these people had passed or were just no longer playing that music or, you know, were playing shows that I could not afford to go see. Um, so yeah, um, finding out about Daptone Records at KUSF, my um, radio station where I had a show, uh, totally changed everything. And um, how did, uh, now I know you've like written about a lot of different groups, like, I mean, you know, groups like Hepcat, who I kind of grew up seeing in LA and are you, who are you you're working on something now about who like Harvey or Vern? Yeah, and you've yeah. written about um, like Joe Paton and stuff like. So since you you've worked for like sort of like you know regular whatever corporate media, like how do you kind of pitch those story? Like how do you get those stories into like a publication that you know is a regular publication that might be like who are these people? Why should we care about them? It's the bane of my existence, man. Um, and it's the reason why I decided to write a whole book because oftentimes um, I feel like I'd been a couple years ahead of the curve with you know pitching stories about artists specifically um, in the soul scene or in ska and reggae. Um, and uh, everyone would say, oh, that's cool, but it's too niche. Oh, it's not going to work or we don't have the budget for it. So um, we can't take it or the worst um, no response and then somebody else in the publication writes it. So, um, it's really about just being like diligent in your pitching, um, and finding folks that have deep history, but haven't been reported on. Um, so Hepcat, um, you know, I wrote that, I wrote a profile of them for LA Weekly, uh, maybe like five years ago or something. And um, I also grew up seeing them. They used to come to the Bay like at least twice a year. And um, what like still have super deep love, will travel for Hepcat wherever. Yeah, they're, um, they're amazing. I saw them sell out a show um, in Orange County a couple months ago. It was like the last thing I did after covering the Grammys um, and then flew home the next morning. But um, in any case, I like, you know, followed trends and followed scenes and realized that they hadn't been written about in a really long time. And they have this like deep, deep, deep love in Los Angeles and elsewhere um, that somebody should showcase and highlight. So um, I, I mean, I consider myself a reporter more than a critic um, for sure. 
and I'm part of various like subcultural scenes. So it's really just about following the threads in those places. Um, and I love subcultures. So even if it's not mine, um, I'm interested in like the movers and shakers within them. Yeah, but I think it's it's actually just a very good service because I mean, for people who you know grow up and follow this music, the music is timeless. So, but then you know, and that's the thing is then getting to writing a book about uh, a label like Daptone that I I think is also making timeless music, but it's obviously also existing in the sphere of where pop music is at and different things, and so. I, I, you know, first of all, I just, I want to give you a lot of credit because uh, I just think it's a book that really needed to be written. Like you captured a scene in a time. I told you this before, but it's, Tell it's me cool. again. no, it's <laughs> cool. It's amazing. Cause I was, you know, there at a lot of these places you're writing about. And it's like, it's just, it's just cool that you captured, you really did kind of capture like personalities and, and, and uh, you know, what it took to kind of like, put this stuff out there and kind of try to keep it true and then people are still not necessarily getting it or whatever but you know it's it's i mean daptone is one of those labels i mean they just really have put out so much amazing music you know you know as as people have said even soul collectors it's one of the greatest soul labels of all time you know Absolutely. And um, thank you for those kind words. That really means a lot to me. It, it it makes me so happy to hear that, you know, I, I was not there when they were doing the stuff in the mid nineties, like I was a kid um, and I was still listening to oldies radio. Um, so it makes me feel really good to know that I portrayed um, this accurately um, and in a way that resonates through good reporting. Um, but yeah, Daptone is, I, I think, you know, when people look back, on you know what soul music was over the course of you know the 20th century um daptone will be up there with the likes of motown and stacks uh, for sure uh definitely a different period but people who were um putting out music that was very um true to them and honest in a way that wasn't like aping any sort of convention yeah and i mean i i I remember kind of like i said even back in the day back in like the late 90s early 2000s when you know this had been around for a bit you know like poets of rhythm and and desco i kept thinking like there was a whole scene here you know and and even like there wasn't really that many articles or things on it so i think it's kind of cool kind of capturing that i mean maybe you can kind of like talk about you know the concept of like how the Daptone roots kind of came about, like kind of through Desco and through, you know, like basically, you know, was it Philip Lehman and like Gabe Roth? And they were kind of like, you know, Philip had that whole background in pure records, you know, so Mm -hmm. he was putting out like, you know, that was something that was happening in the 90s is all these bootleg funk comps because the records were very obscure and obscure labels and people didn't really have a whole budget to do proper reissues. So they would, but the DJs wanted the records, so they would put out comps and then, you know, it sort of evolved even in some of Phillips pure label that he started to be like, I'm going to make records that I'm going to put a few new funk tracks that I recorded on these funk comps so that it kind of looked like, there was, you know, it was all old music, but there was a few new records. And then Desco almost becomes like the extension of, okay, now we're going to put out 
heavy funk like from a certain time period that 68 to 72 style james brown meters heavy funk but kind of like make it you know you know newer records but but i mean i think a lot of these guys are coming as collectors too from those kind of classic records so like both philip you know and poets of rhythm they put out records that look like old records so they were trying to fake out collectors you know yeah exactly um and funny you should mention reissues i'm actually working on a um, story for the new volume of dust and grooves about reissue labels um but uh yeah daptone uh or sorry desco at that point um was phil lehman and gabe roth and you know gabe was still in college he kind of thought he was going to be like um a teacher at some point and he was taking all of these kind of random like musical classes just to sort of fill out his schedule and um he meets phil and the two of them sort of bond over their love of these like really deep fucked up records and all of the funk cops that are coming up there and they're sharing each other like records with each other and just you know blowing each other's minds um and eventually they decide that they're going to like start this record label and um you know, Phil came from a record background. He also came from like a more moneyed background. And um, uh, Gabe was just, you know, sort of like brash kid, like, you know, fuck it, I'll do whatever, you know, I want to do. And I don't think that they put too much thought behind it. Um, but they end up, um, you know, being inspired by the likes of Poets of Rhythm who were doing this all before they did um, and putting together um you know, a few different releases and eventually like growing their family. So um, they start out with like house bands, soul providers, um, and, you know, eventually through like, you know, osmosis, basically, um, they start developing this family. They get a bunch of like teenage kids who are also like super into to funk and they do uh, the Mighty Imperials. And... Yeah, I remember they played an FMU benefit around that time. So I met, oh, I, yeah. I actually, what's funny is meeting those guys later, but I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. You played like an FMU benefit at Smack Melon because, you know, because I was into, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah, the Mighty, they had people from high school like playing meters covers. And then, you know, obviously people like Binky Griptide and, and all these different people coming in at that time. Yeah, I love um, I love the story of Binky like getting into the Desco fold um, because at the time like everybody was playing funk who wasn't a digger really liked to show off and so much of this music is just like about playing simply and playing to the whole and um, you know everyone's trying to like slap the bass and do all this like weird shit um, so they bring Binky in and they're like yeah we're just gonna like see how long he'll play this like you know one riff from james brown i can't actually remember what it is in the book right now but um you know allegedly he's just like going at it and going at it and going at it and then he starts to like nod off and they're like yeah that's the one that's the guy yeah no uh, it's like the whole concept of like you know obviously getting people are really good players but it is about the groove so it's like can you stay in the groove and not just start going all over like you know what's funny is that's what's kind of cool about that book is i remember gabe telling me that story so it's just like 
capturing those stories like yeah we're gonna have this person sit in and if he doesn't do anything wacky for like eight minutes while we play this song then you're the guy because you're not trying to noodle around like no this is the groove and i mean that's when you look at especially some of those like classic jb's type riffs that's why they're just powerful it's like yeah they're all really good players but they're also like in the groove you know yeah yeah and they're playing together and they're just tight and they're practiced and um yeah i i think you know without knowing it um desco were really sort of setting the bar for you know what would be like the best soul and funk music um in in the 90s and 2000s for sure yeah, I mean, again, it's in terms of like measuring it, look, you know, capturing that kind of sound. Because I think what happened, I mean, you had bands even like James Taylor Quartet and different people, but it was, you know, and they would make like really good records, but then, you know, sometimes it just wasn't quite produced. Like you didn't, you didn't quite capture that sound, you mm-hmm. know? So that's what I think where like Desco and especially Daptone, they kind of like, really captured like no we're gonna actually really try to make you know again it's not just some retro thing we're really gonna try and make original music but it is gonna like have that kind of like crisp sound that you're like yes i would play this you know which again it's sort of like the difference between like the real world and then you know just the people who are in the scenes like you're not trying to make it exclusively for the scene but you you want people in that scene to play those records you know and, you know, you hear from somebody like um, Mr. Finewine, like, you know, when you're playing all these old soul records, the EQ's all over the place and, you know, you have to adjust a lot, but on a Daptone record, it sounds perfect. Like, it's just like really good production all throughout. They know what they're doing. And at the same time, earlier in uh, the Daptone run and definitely in like the Desco days, um, you know, they have these new funk records but no collector wants to play them because new funk has such a bad rap. Even to to Gabe and Phil, they don't like new funk records. So they would like drive around with, you know, Lee Fields 45s, brand new stuff that you just killed on that sounds great and rough them up and take them down from like mint to, you know, VG minus or whatever. Um, so they could get uh, stores to buy them. Yeah, that that was the odd thing. And I think Gabe has said this in, in interviews. It wasn't even like he was necessarily like, I want to make these fake funk records, but they would put like, okay, here's us. This is a new record and people wouldn't care. But then it's like, okay, here's a fake funk track soundtrack, like the Revenge of Mr. Mapoji or whatever, <laughs> you know? And since it was like, oh, it's old and it's rare and it was never, you know, rare issued, you know? So, okay, it, like, there was, so I would, yeah, that's like kind of like a very interesting like now it doesn't matter because people like Daptone open the door to be like, oh, you can have or and then subsequent, you know, record labels like Coal Mine or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, that like, oh, you can have these records or Timmins, you know, like these labels that are really, really good. But I think in the early 90s, yeah, there a lot of the new stuff never didn't quite have that crisp sound. So then people are like, "All right, it's a good effort," you know, as they say in England, but it's not quite there, you know. But it yeah. was there. But then because it was, you know, that's what I think is kind of a funny thing is like, yeah, people would only kind of care about it more if they made it as like a a fake record, you know. Yeah, exactly, absolutely, um, and. I mean, it goes to show you kind of um, how 
silly sometimes like collectors can be um definitely and Absolutely. i i think I think one of the good things about Desco and Daptone, like particularly in the earlier years, is they didn't really take themselves too seriously. You know, like they were working hard for sure. Um, and they were passionate about this music and about the community that they were creating. But I don't ever, they, they didn't look at it like we are doing this very important thing and we need to be serious about, <laughs> about this thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that fun comes off in, in their records. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I remember, you know, what's funny is I, you know, was cater waitering when I first moved to New York in like 93. And who was I working with? Neil Sugarman. Who I was oh. introduced <laughs> to my roommate. And he's like, oh, he's playing at Three of Cups, you know, this bar in the East Village that they were literally p playing for like pizza and a little bit of bucks. And it was just, you know, that's what, again, what's kind of cool is I, you know, was around seeing all this stuff and Neil had this kind of like almost early 60s, you know, soul organ groove vibe, not necessarily like heavy funk. And, you know, I had had at one point, I had uh, Phil on my radio show on FMU back then, you know, oh, no while way. he was doing like the pure comps and starting out with Desco. And so at one point, Neil is like, yeah, this guy Phil wants me to like, you know, you know, record on Desco. What do you think? I'm like, yeah, do it because you're gonna be. If you get stuck on some contemporary jazz label, you might make a bunch of records, but these guys, you know, will get you. But he's like, yeah, he wants me to do a bunch of James Brown covers. <laughs> you know? so, so I mean, it's just funny, like the beginnings of this stuff, like being around this stuff, you know, and going to like, you know, what is it? That studio that was near like the Lincoln Tunnel. There's always like yeah. insane traffic. It was like 44th. The 40, you know, 44th Street or whatever. 41st Street. Yeah, 41st well, Street. Yeah, yeah because. They have a, a record about it. Yeah, exactly. 41st Street Breakdown, which, yeah. yeah. And, and that's also one of the really nice things in your book is you really get into a lot of the classics and rarities and just even like a lot of stuff where I'm like, oh, I should visit this record. Like you kind of really get into the nooks and crannies of, you know, a lot of stuff they put out because they just put out a lot of different projects, you know. They really did. And I mean, there's so many players because all of these are big bands, right? So everybody has like a little story here, remembrance there. Um, like, you know, one thing I, I love is that um, Adam Scone, who's playing with uh, Neil Sugarman, the Sugarman Three, um, he lives in the same building as the Desco Studios. So like whenever he has a session, he's just like, I'm going to put my ham in, in the elevator and bring it on down. And, you know, we're there super easily. Um, and uh you know, I, I, I often wish, do you, do you remember those books um, from when we were kids? They had like little picture and sound cues and like a little keyboard on the side where like if you saw a heart, you press the little heart key and it makes a sound. No. Vaguely, <laughs> vaguely. I wish that my book had one of those where it could be like a little sound, a sonic cue every time um, like there was a, a tune to hear, just like a little snippet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember like the book and record thing, like turn the page. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So something like that. Um, it was really fun for me to um, to listen to all of these things too. I mean, I have, um, as you would expect, a very deep knowledge of the catalog, but you know, there's obviously like releases and things that I didn't know very well or like somehow slipped across. And um, especially during the pandemic, which is when I did the majority of writing this book, um, it really did uh, give me a lot of life. 
Yeah, and then as like Desco kind of like sort of folded into Daptone and it became kind of like uh, Gabe and Neil, like uh, it's just like, yeah, I don't know. It's just a really crazy story because there's just so many like classic personalities that, you know, some of us are, are they're not here anymore. Like Sharon Jones, obviously, and uh, Charles Bradley and Dan Klein yeah. from the Frighteners and, you know. Naomi but, Shelton. Naomi um, Shelton is Cliff Driver. Did he pass as well? Yeah. yeah. He did. So, I mean, um, it's like, again, it's, I just think it's an important book as you're capturing just some, I mean, like, you know, they're all legends, but like Sharon Jones, I mean, just what a powerhouse, you know? Truly. Um, like God bless that woman. Um, I, I remember seeing her perform in um, San Francisco, the first tour that she came back after, um, after, uh, uh, going into remission from cancer and um I just wept <laughs> um it was it was so incredible to just like see her come back with this like fury and this power and like such I mean it's, it's cheesy but like such soul um but um I there are so many bits and pieces of you know reportage on the scene and these people and um you know lots of video as well not necessarily from the early days but um you know, once they started to get big, um, I can't remember who said it, but it was, it was probably uh, it was probably Gabe um, or maybe Homer um, that once they realized that, you know, people just needed to see Sharon, like they would come back and they would be hooked. So, um, you know, even though these people aren't around anymore, you can really get a sense of, you know, who they are and as people, as performers. Um, from video, from audio interviews, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think it's like there is like a real family vibe. Like they were, you know, like share. I remember when they got the house at like whatever Manhattan Street or whatever in Bushwick on Troutman Street, which Troutman is Street, uh, all Troutman shut Street, down right. now. Um, and very, yeah. Oh uh, wow, that's crazy. They're, they're not really operating out of that place anymore. Oh man, what a drag. Yeah, yeah, but they shifted I mean, operations to California. But they, they, yeah, I know exactly. It's like Motown West and shit. Because mm -hmm. I know that Gabe, is, Gabe is in Riverside these days. But, uh, but yeah, they basically turned this house into a studio. And I remember there, I was, you know, sweeping out the basement a little bit with Sharon, and she's, you know, she's. It's just like what's kind of amazing is when you see them on stage and they're doing their thing, but they're just like very down to earth people, you know that's what's kind of crazy about it is like you know they're just chill but then you see her like i remember seeing sharon jones all these different small th you know places coming up like cbgb's gallery and random shows and there was a time again when she had come back from cancer and was performing i think central park summer stage and was like four or five thousand people and she had them in the palm of her hand just destroying it and i'm like wow and this is what I can, I give you props for, for putting this book out there. Like people need to know about this stuff, like the whole story. Cause it's just crazy. The, you know, they work so hard. They toured like so hard for so many years for so long. and just having a vision of like, you know, especially Gabe and those guys just being very uncompromising. Like, no, we're really going to try and make this sound and put it mm -hmm. out there. We don't really care if, you don't you think it's too raw or if you think it's retro or if you think it's this and that you know and just yeah it's kind of powerful the whole thing you know yeah absolutely i mean you know 
you think about how hard it is to, or how hard it is to get noticed, but also just like the glut of, of music that's out there. I mean, especially today with streaming, they were, you know, in a sort of earlier version of media consumption, but um, they really, really earned their stripes by the road mile. Like they were touring all over the country in small vans, playing small clubs, going back and back and back and back. And, you know, every time they would go back to a place, they'd have more people because folks saw, you know, the power of Sharon Jones. They saw how tight the band was. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite quotes in the book is, is from Neil. Um, you know, people will ask, he, I was asking him if he had like a favorite memory, a favorite show. And he says he got that question fairly often and he can't really think of a particular time. It's just that like um, moment in the show or like, you know, part of the show where everyone's just like really in step with each other and, you know, in the groove and Sharon is just like working it and working it them really hard. And he has tears streaming down his face and he's just like blowing his horn really bad. And he's like, everybody feels uplifted. Um, I can imagine it's like the most spiritual thing um, to be part of something like that. May we talk about um, some of the sort of like the actual how to kind of get that sound? Like I remember, you know, going to 41st Street and like, you know, Neil having like, I mean, not Neil, like Gabe having like, you know, recording a whole band with like one microphone and just like these crazy, like almost like duplicating old school, you know, when people didn't really have a budget, but still would kind of like turn out these recordings. And even, you know, I've heard him on interviews talking about the whole concept of like, yeah, a computer makes things kind of easier, but it's like if you have a bunch of good musicians, it kind of like, it's sort of like a way of like kind of capturing, you know, kind of getting, or, you know, even the concept of like recording, like, okay, we're going to have all these people in different rooms to get the sound perfect, but it's like, okay, but what about just playing all together at the same time? It's like, why is that? the weird aspect when that's when kind of it's almost like capturing it live but obviously you have to get a studio recording so you want to get it a little bit better than say a live recording but kind of getting to that essence you know yeah and um what's what's interesting is i think that that like live in in studio um recording to tape using analog equipment is now very much um a uh a desirable thing you know it's cool um maybe a little less today than it was like five years ago but um just because the sort of revival scene has has ebbed a little bit but um yeah they really help set a standard for that in the contemporary era you know putting everybody in the same room miking minimally um recording to tape so you get a different uh response out of your musicians like you know if you couldn't do anything you know a million times over maybe you're not gonna put the same amount of effort into it but if you know that you only have you know four takes and uh tape is expensive and this is a punk rock operation uh you're gonna try a little bit harder yeah i mean i remember again another place you mentioned which was like amayo's basement studio in brooklyn mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. it's it's kind of funny like i said just even personally it's just it was a very cool book for me to read just be like oh yeah i was there too but i remember he was recording i think it was for like maybe the third anti-ballas record i was going down there where gabe was editing some mm -hmm. of the things and at one point he was doing something and he he accidentally like recorded i forget what it was but 
there was something that was like a little bit of a fuck up. So then he had to go and splice the tape, you know, to kind of mm-hmm. cut out that whole part. And he kind of did it in this sort of like real segue way, you know, almost like beat matching in a way or, you know, kind of getting because, he, you know, cool. it's like tape, you know, but I'm like, man, this is crazy shit. Like, you know, that whole concept of tape, it's like, yeah, that's the tape. That's what the record's going to be. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a whole crazy thing, you know, in terms of like working with that kind of machines and stuff like that. It's nuts, you know. And actually knowing how to like engineer things. Um, and they have a good crew of folks that are doing that too. Um, I mean, I'm really impressed by the places that they're recording in. And I think it sort of speaks to the like spirituality in a way of this music um, or in a way that like you have to feel it in a particular way. Because like a Miles basement, probably a terrible place to record by like all proper metrics. Um, a busted ass house that's like filled with tires that have been salvaged and random rags and like um, uh, curtains that they took from a theater, which is actually probably very good. But, um, you know, other things, everything's very DIY. You have like the biggest Hollywood studio person come in there and they're going to be like, what the fuck is this place? Yeah. But it sounds really good. Um, and you know, Gabe will say like, ah, there's nothing about this room. It just sort of is what it is. But a lot of other people would say there's some sort of magic into it. Well, I remember he had that kind of concept, which I think he walked away from a little bit, but it was like, it always kind of stuck with me. The shitty is pretty sound because the whole thing is it, again, this is what is kind of like cool for people like in the scene, DJs collecting this stuff is yeah, that actually is what we're going for. We don't want some completely glossed over, record we're looking for like those rough records mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. so it was just very cool to see people someone like you know those guys go against the whole grain of like oh we have these computers and we can make things slicker and quote unquote more professional and it's like no like actually we want rough records that's why we pay all this money for these rare records you know mm-hmm. or whatever because that's it has a certain kind of sound so i think like going against like it's almost like a real counterculture thing to go against oh the technology is making things better but it's like you know again not to make it like shitty as in shitty sounding but just rough you know rough you know yeah and i mean that's like a 20 something person's like manifesto if there ever was one right um but it's it's resonant and he definitely back walked like walked that back um later in his career but he's not wrong and you're not wrong in in your your assessment of it like shitty is pretty that is why those like hard funk records um both from desco from early dab tone from all of the comps um from all of the like real og shit um that we love that's why it's so good or one of the reasons why it's so good is because it's like kind of messy and it's been kind of rough um and and it really translated um you know what i think is interesting is how even though shitty is pretty hard funk records were the thing for like the majority of Desco's run. And in the early uh, days of Daptone, you know, they really did transition um, from that into, you know, a sort of sweeter side of soul definitely now, but something that was like a little bit more mid tempo 
um, in the height of their career. And maybe it's because it was easier to dance to, but I also think it's because it was more complex and they were developing as songwriters and as performers and as musicians. They developed um, so, as a soul label. You really yeah. did. Like, and, and it wasn't even necessarily, okay, we have to make every song like some hard funk dance number or whatever. Like they were they were kind of like really trying to make soul records, like in a real sense, like it's, you know, ballads and, you know, like just, yes, even some of the mid-tempo stuff, you know, it's it's kind of like even going against the grain, the purism of the scene, like, okay, we're only looking for heavy, hard funk records, which I think was maybe more of Phillips from Pierre's aspect, where they were kind of going like, we're going to be a soul label and make even soul tracks, make mid-tempo tracks, you know. Well, I think, too, you know, they had um, a growing number of, you know, friends and influences. You have everything that's going on with Antibalis, um, and that's bringing, you know, um, Afrobeat and, you know, all of this sort of, like, world music into the fore. Um, you have, you know, Sharon coming in with her own experience. Um, you know, eventually you have Charles coming in and doing his own thing, and, like, all of these people can operate in that world of hard funk, but like tastes are changing. People are finding this music more and um, they love it and they're accepting it, but like they want something else to listen to as well. And I think what's interesting um, is, you know, Daptone is certainly setting the pace here, but they're also following what's happening or they're, they're indicative of what's happening um, in the like larger national and international soul community. Um, you know, you go from like breaks and heavy funk in, you know, the mid nineties to something that's like a little bit more, um, nuance might not be the right word, but, um, something that has a bit of a, uh, like wider sonic lens. And, and, and um, also, and also just how the singers are like someone like Charles yeah. Bradley, like destroys ballads you know so why should you just always i mean he's another one that's just again just a really unique personality which i think you really captured you know i i dj'd a few shows with him back in the day and got you know got i didn't know him well but you know got to meet him hang out a few times just like it's very cool that you captured you know i learned a lot about charles bradley in your book you know because i didn't realize all that background and you know yeah. so it's just like it's very cool because even though, you know, like I was there in a sense, like not at every show, but following that scene at a lot of shows, following those records, buying all those records, it's like, it's just kind of cool to be like, wow, I didn't even know that was the backstory on some of that stuff. It's, you know, it what was... do you, another, another very powerful, like, performer, like, just like, fucking A. I, I have, for real, for real, I have long thought that seeing, like, Watching Charles perform he, is not easy. It's it's not like a like a it's uplifting, but it's a hard show. Like you're taken through a roller coaster of emotions. And I've long thought that it was like getting punched in the stomach and then being like, oh my God, please can I have some more? Um and I I I don't think I've seen quite as visceral a performer uh before or since. Um but it was interesting learning more about him, too, from various people, especially um, Tom Brennick, who was you know, very, very close with him um, and, you know, helped him come up. And then also the younger members of his band um, who are closer to my age um, and, you know, are getting like their first big breaks playing with him. 
and having all of these experiences with this, you know, very um, complex man who um, is achieving something, experiencing something that he never thought he would in his life. Um, and, and truly, um, yeah, it was crazy because he, he he was, you know, they, they I guess they, and I didn't even realize in this book, like, I think they, they got, like, Hannibal down to the studio at one point, but then it didn't really yeah. work out. And, and, and you know, so, so then it's like, oh, we got the, what about that weird guy who was like a James Brown impersonator? So it's almost like, kind of almost like he was just making money, you know, just trying to, like, be somebody else because again that's what society is like oh you're not famous enough so you can be james brown but then when you actually have a label like daptone that can draw charles out to be his own person you're like wow what a powerful powerful performer and artist like so that's what i think again is brilliant about daptone and going creating this kind of like you know, corner of the world where it's like, actually, you don't have to be a James Brown impersonator. Actually, we don't want that. We want you. Yeah, you know? exactly. And they, um, you know, they as a label were supportive, but there were also these very deep personal connections that allowed him to grow because it wasn't just that like the world wanted him to be a James Brown impersonator. Um, that's where he felt safe. Um, he had so much trauma in his life and, um, you know, such deep emotions that that was his like real safety net. And it took a lot for them to, and particularly like Tommy, um, to, you know, pull him out of that comfort zone and onto stage like as himself. And um, the Charles chapters are some of my favorites for sure. And some of the most difficult to write. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like in terms of like, because you you obviously, like I said, you're a part of the scene for a long time. So, you know, that's what I think is is cool is you're not just some like, OK, I'm uh, outside. I'm just going to try and get the story here. Like you you want to really represent it right. you know, and like I said, I even a million years ago, I'm like, oh, somebody should write a book on this. But <laughs> I'm like ADD. I'm not going to you know, it's like it takes a lot of organization and like how long, you know, so how do you, when you're writing those chapters, I mean, you obviously want to really try and capture it, but it must not be easy in a way too, because you want to make sure it's good, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I, like, I'm a fan first and foremost, and it was extremely important to me to like tell this story correctly, um, as accurately as possible. Um, and with like as much love and soul, um, and the more I care about something, the harder it is for me to write about it. Um, like if I don't give a shit about something, I'm like, oh, I see the pieces here and I'll just put them together. But this was, you know, this was a, a, a big project um, to say the least. But um, being unemployed during a global pandemic is really great structure for, um, you know, doing a major project <laughs> like this. So um, I'm one of those assholes that like did something. Um, during the first like year or so of of the pandemic no i mean it's good i mean yeah i guess you just have to like take time and just just basically put it together you know yeah well i i've been reporting on this i mean i from um start to like seeing it on the shelf was about three years and um i had been reporting on this for about a year and a half and saw it as a larger scene study um i wanted to write about the funk and soul revival at large, um, from coast to coast, so Desco Daptone, um, 
what was going on in LA with like Breakastra with Connie Price and the Keystones. Um, you yeah, know, the, Miles the, and Dan and all yeah, those dudes. Um, and you know, all the stuff that I had like seen growing up in San Francisco, um, what was going on in England, because of course they were like keeping the faith for a long time, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I was doing interviews on that for quite some time, you know, trying to get a book deal. Um, but everybody thought that that was like too broad and also too niche. Um, and Daptone was always going to be a character in the story. But whenever I would get like a rejection from an agent or from a publisher, they'd be like, yeah, like that's cool. I mean, we really love Daptone. I mean, yeah, a huge fan of Sharon. But and um, I remember I was like out in L.A., and it was raining, like pouring ass rain um, for extra drama. And I called a friend from journalism school and I was complaining to her about how difficult it was. I'm like, man, maybe I should just make this thing a Daptone bio. And uh, she's like, yeah, if we learned anything in school, it's like when to pivot. Um, and I called up Gabe like a few days later. No, it's great. That's great. And one of the things that you also get into the book that was uh, talking about the whole like uh, the sort of soldies scene, the kind yes. of Chicano kind of like uh, East Side Soul or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and kind of like where Gabe is at a little bit because he's out in Riverside and like Penrose Records and stuff. But mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that, you know, because. I mean, and that's, again, it's just, it's cool. It's like all these different kind of like factors, you know, even what we were talking about before, like people, you know, like, again, people like Lee Fields making tracks, like, uh, was it like Honey Dove or whatever? Like some, like, just like going back to ballads, like it doesn't have to, again, always be some like break or hard funk, like kind of like the nineties look at some of this records, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I never really like thought about it at the time, but the sort of soldies thing was a little bit closer to what I grew up listening to. There was a um, a program, um, the Sunday Super Oldie with Tony Sandoval on 98.1 Kiss FM every Sunday. And this guy, I swear to God, like knowing radio, I, he, he had a like eight to 10 hour show on Sunday. I don't know how he did this, but it was That's every crazy. Sunday. I know, right? I mean, maybe it's more like six hours, but whatever it was, it felt like it was all day. And that's a lot of a lot of radio. Um, but, you know, he was doing requests and playing cruising, you know, anthems and people were calling in and making dedications. And it was really lovely. Um, and it's funny, I, I didn't really think that like this would be the avenue that like Soul Revival would go down. But here we are, um, and one of the big main branches that are continuing um, is like Sweet Soul and like Lowrider Oldies, Roll Us, you know, um, these very sort of like stripped down vocal harmony groups. And they are absolutely resonating in California and the Southwest. Um, and for big reason, because it's, you know, it's brown folks that are keeping this stuff going. Um, it's not necessarily like black populations. It's not necessarily like legions of white kids. It's a lot of like Chicanos who grew up listening to oldies, to Art LeBeau, um, to, you know, going to car shows. And this is very much a deep part of their culture. Um, so you have a ton of groups, um, out in Southern California, 
um, like, you know, chief among them, Sacred Souls, the Altons, the Illusions, shout out to my homie Fredo. Um, in the Bay Area, my best friend is in a great, like, you know, soul band that does a lot of sweet soul. His name is Andre Cruz um, and Chris Lujan. Um, and it's it's cool. Like, this is sort of the next generation of, of folks. Um, personally, I, it could be like a little hard for me to listen to over a long period of time. Um, it, it could get a little samey, but I do love like a beautiful vocal harmony and it sort of tracks with the like rock steady that um, I also came up listening to and love. Well, I also think it's just interesting because as Daptone has been around for what, 20 plus years, 25 years, I don't even know how many years, but I mean, um, it's, yeah, no, but I'm saying it's like the evolution of even within Soul Revival to kind of go into different directions, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's one of the many beautiful things about this music and like by this music, I mean, soul music is like the well is endless. You can dig and dig and dig and you're always going to find something new to inspire you. Um, and I mean, I saw the Sacred Souls perform um, at the Sultan Room. No, sorry, uh, Brooklyn Made. Um, last year and i thought it was going to be like a really chill show i didn't expect like a ton of people to be there it was lit and people were like losing it to to this band and you know this is like three guys i don't think any of them are 30 years old um that caught gabe's ear off of like one demo or part of a demo um and it just you know got to him and they you know, were some of the first I used to Penrose. So, um, you know, it's it's really heartening that there are still like young communities of people that are like into this and that are making music. Yeah, it just it just keeps going, you know. For sure. I mean, and like that's to you know, we haven't even like touched all of the other smaller labels and you know labels that aren't so small anymore, like coal mine. Um, and I think coal mine is just insane. They put out so much ill shit. I really give them credit, and you know, even people like Big Crown, like I Mm -hmm. said, and all the European labels and whatever. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's and that's what I'm saying. What's kind of cool about this book is that these people will keep making records things will keep evolving but it's 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 you know it's sort of always bubbling underneath the surface but it's very mm-hmm. important to the people that follow this music like i'd rather listen to that than most pop music you know oh my god 100% so for would. me this is much more important than kate say what's going on in this sort of bigger world you know but yeah, uh, well, personally i mean I also think that, you know, they are setting, you know, they're they're showing what's cool for the bigger world. I mean, in addition to putting out all these dope records, like a bunch of these Daptone guys are session players. So you have like Leon and um, and Tommy and Homer and they're like tight with Mark Ronson and they're playing on all this Bruno Mars stuff. And Bruno Mars is sort of aping what they were doing, what Daptone was doing. They're like, well, that's cool. We're going to make it, you know, a little more polished. We're going to make it more radio friendly. Um, Amy Winehouse reached out to Daptone, or, you know, her people reached out to Daptone, again, Mark Ronson, because they could provide something for her pop that um, they couldn't do on their own, that Amy and Mark Ronson couldn't yeah, do Yeah, and, that, and that's obviously a whole other story. And that was actually another thing I learned in your book. I mean, obviously I knew about them playing with Amy and all that stuff and doing those sessions. But uh, I didn't really ever think about like 
you know, and again, it wasn't like like some big animosity, but just this the circumstances of it with like Amy Whitehouse and Sharon Jones. That Sharon Jones, mm-hmm. I think, at that point was two or three records in the Daptone, and they'd been grinding and you know, the van, not even buses necessarily, and going to, like, Europe and whatever. And then Amy Winehouse immediately, you know, with the record label backing and, you know, mm-hmm. being younger and white, and all of a sudden she's getting all the spotlight. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a mind fuck, and that's when it's kind of like the sort of institutional things do kind of have a sort of, like, varying on that, you know. Like, to this day, probably most people know more about Amy Winehouse and Sharon Jones even still oh, 100%. to this day, you know I mean if, if I'm talking to somebody like you know a, a, a normie or whatever about um about this book that's my entry point it's like well obviously you know Amy Winehouse and everybody knows Amy Winehouse and I mean I, I remember when uh Back to Black came out I was like kept it at an arm's distance I was like what is this like this is this is not dap tone I, da, 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 da. um and i i was i was very skeptical i felt like protective over this music and this sound and like i have no say or influence on it at all but like i was worried um but you know in revisiting um amy's work for this book i'm like wow you know i mean it's it's really fucking good <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, again, they did like the arrangements and stuff. So it's yeah. like they kind of like put that sort of daptone spin in it, they you did. know. I liked learning um, how like certain tunes came to be like Valerie, for example. Um, you know, how that was sort of like a, a late in the day take. And they're like, well, can we just do one more version? And they did it their way. And it ended up being this, you know, pop hit that we that we know today i mean i uh, dj'd at weddings sometimes it's hilarious you know that's what's yeah. kind of funny about that stuff is like again how do how does this stuff translate in the real world and real conscious but it does They're, those and it, as you said with the even session people like mm-hmm. they get these people get out there that sound is out there like even if people aren't fully aware of it yeah of course bruno mars is and some of these people you know there's an influence there you know yeah um i mean tom brennick was you know rent like a partner um in mark ronson's studio for a really long time um and now has like started doing his own thing and like you look at his credits and they're they're nuts and he was just like a teenage kid sneaking into um anti-ballish shows so you know what daptone and its ilk did like really hit and in a number of ways and if you follow the thread or like dig through um all music it's it's pretty fascinating to see like how far this little label um has has grown or has gone and um, how deep it's influenced you know yeah yeah and uh i know we've been talking for a while i wanted to talk just a little bit about you know obviously the frighteners which oh, is yeah. another kind of tragic because obviously people like sharon joan and charles bradley are a bit older but uh you know, they were uh, a local, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, rock steady. I don't know how would you totally describe, but I feel like that's probably closest. I mean, obviously, they're they're playing different styles, but um, mm-hmm. but yeah. And then he died of like, what is it, a uh, ALS, ALS, right? Yeah, like yeah. Gehrig's disease or whatever. And he was was he even thirty or he was thirty four. Dan was thirty four. Yeah. 
because they play um, they played like a uh, loft party I did years ago. Oh, so yeah. again, I feel lucky that I caught all this stuff just being there. You know, like I had Victor <laughs> DJ and he was telling me about oh I'm putting out this Rocksteady group on on Daptone. So I had them play like. I, I forget, it was some years back. But yeah, but Victor kind of brought, and again, like Daptone's sort of evolving sound is, you know, of course, like doing rock steady the Daptone way, which is correctly, you know, and Victor yeah. and Victor Axelrod obviously is a genius, you know, musically. Uh, yeah, a madman. Um, no, I, I love the Frighteners, and um, um, Nothing More to Say is a fucking masterpiece. Um, so that, that is a, a very interesting and sad story, you know, like the Frighteners are, you know, pretty deep in, in New York reggae for their generation, which is, you know, we're all about the same age. Um, and they've been playing around for a long time. They were, you know, um, close, became close with Victor and um, they were getting you know they were in the middle of uh recording this record which was like a sort of long time coming and then as these things go like you know slow 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 build and then oh my gosh we have to record everything right now um and you know through recording dan started being you know feeling ill and getting sick and falling down and having all of these issues that they would later find out were als and um you know he was deteriorating rapidly they couldn't you know um like record, like do overdubs with some of his vocals because See, he just you didn't even know that place. yeah that's yeah crazy. yeah he just wasn't in a place to record um and um i i on my street there's uh quite a lot of sirens the uh, fire department uses it to get down to flatbush so it is loud um but um anyway so um he was falling ill as you know they were sort of putting the finishing touches on this record and um, the last thing that he did was, you know, go see Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings perform at Prospect Park um, for Celebrate Brooklyn. And he passed away like the next night. Um, and I mean, this is very quickly, I think like eight or nine months from finding out. Um, so they had really tried to put the record out before he died. Um, and he didn't live to see his his like first album which i mean is is so beautiful um i later found out that like they like rock steady but that wasn't really their thing the um the latest album that it came out with always um which was released i think like in november this um 2022 was much more reflective of what they did and in this demoing process for um the uh, Daptone Rocksteady record, um, they had like recorded everything from rehearsal as they're like woodshedding all these, you know, different songs. And um, they had the foresight to record um, the instrumental tracks and dance voice separately. So when it came time to put together this new record, they just did some studio magic and had all of these different stems and then put Dan's voice over, you know, those plus whatever they had built on top of so you have this like really beautiful like um you know dub record uh some like rootsy vibe in there too that um is kind of like dan coming in through the ether um it's it's wild yeah i mean and, and just like sharon i mean i know we could keep talking for a while but like sharon's whole battle with cancer 
Oh, you know, God. And just coming back. And, and again, I kind of was following all this stuff at the time, like all of us, because we love this music. But, uh, you know, again, that's what's nice about a book is you can get all those details and all that stuff. I, you know, like, yeah. uh, it's crazy. It's a crazy story. She is a tough motherfucker. Oh, my God, man. Just, Ain't that what the truth? What a fucking badass. What an absolute badass, man. Yeah. I, um, I, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's it like is, that song switchblade, you know, <laughs> but that, but that is her. That's one of my favorites. It's so cool that you, yeah, you mentioned that. You like, I don't know if you'll be able to see this. Um, hold on. I want let me, let me, um, unblur my background so you can, um, you can fully see how relevant this is, but I've had this picture of Sharon with a big ass knife oh, on my phone yes. for like five years. That's um, so it's so cool. Now this is a the switchblade section or session, but um, this is I believe from like an outtake from a video for like the game gets old. Okay. Um, but I love it, and so it gives me funny. such power every time I look at it. Um, but yeah, Sharon is Sharon is like my my hero, and it is um, a great regret of my life that I did not get to interview her. Um, I it was funny, like a, a few months ago, I got like a Facebook memory um, that I put up there and I said, I was going to like, I was so excited. I was going to interview Sharon Jones on my radio show in San Francisco when the band was coming to town. And, um, you know, I, I can't, I think I was just sharing my excitement. I don't think I was asking for anything. And I remember it, the interview fell through and I was so crushed um, and it sort of never came back around again. Um, but I got to meet her a couple times, which was nice. One of which I was extremely drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and I fubbed the whole thing. I fubbed the whole thing. That's a whole separate story I could tell. No, <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. Um, I know we've been talking for a while, but, um, I mean, you know, like there's endless stuff with this, but, uh, you're still writing and stuff. Like I said, you're doing, are you doing something on like Harvey Avern? That's what I kind of uh -huh. heard. Yeah, so that's um, amazing. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is good. You're doing good things in the world, Jessica. You're the people you so should much. read about freaking Harvey Avern. I will. They should, dude. So odd, man. Yeah. So um, Harvey um, is a Jewish producer of Latin music. He saw it all from the Borscht Belt to the Palladium. He was like the COO of Fania. He got the first Grammys for Latin music with Eddie Palmieri. Um, and uh, this man can talk. He is 86. He lives in Queens. Um, and he's close with one of my closest friends, Erica Ramos, um, who is a singer that I met when I was writing um, about Boogaloo for Vice. So everything is connected. But um, I am working on a profile of him for The New York Times, which will hopefully be out in uh, mid-May. Um, I actually have to sit down and write it. <laughs> That's amazing. But, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, my day job is working for the Recording Academy. I'm a senior editor at Grammy.com. So um, I do a lot of editing. I'm working on a story right now about Duran Jones, um, another soul brother who's coming out with his debut record in a couple, in, in a week. I mean, this will probably air after that. So it's a really good record. You should listen to it. Um, and I've written stories recently about um, Nick Waterhouse, um, I came he out with also makes great music. 
he also does make great music. Um, his latest record is very interesting. Um, it's like a, a, a city record and very much about his time in San Francisco. So we were like geeking out about that because um, we also came up in sort of similar circles. Um, and I all speaking of San Francisco, I yesterday came out with a story about um, the history of this venue, the knockout, uh, which has been very important to a number of punk scenes. So um, through lines here are um, uh, underground culture. That is that is my that is my jam. And I love to tell people stories. Um, so to be able to write about like Harvey Avern to, um, you know, be able to like help spread the gospel that is like Duran Jones is such an honor um, and a privilege to me. I, I feel very lucky that um, folks trust me to tell their stories and I do it damn well. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Well, uh, I mean, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to rap about or whatever. I know, like I said, we've been talking for a minute. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I guess I would just like plug that uh, people couldn't find my writing at jlipsky.com and on the internet. I'm very active on the Instagram as Interview Boogaloo. Um, I DJ and I have yeah, some. And you DJ, where, where are you DJing these days? Where can, I, where can um, people find you? Well, I've been back and forth between here and California a lot, so I don't have any like uh, regular gigs at the moment, but I'll be at um, Crystal Lake in um, in Williamsburg for a Northern Soul Night on the 20th. Um, I'm hopefully going to get another gig at Great Georgiana, and I'll probably be on the West Coast somewhere very soon um, in San Francisco or in L.A. All right. Well, thank yeah. you, thank you so much for uh, taking the time, and people uh, go go check out that book. I know it, it took me. I'm like I said, I'm slightly ADD, so it took me a while to read it. I don't know. I don't always do well with books in terms of like finishing them, but I'm like, I gotta finish the book. Finish and, mine. <laughs> no, I gotta finish the book, and I gotta interview Jessica because it's very important. No, but uh, it, it you did, you, did, you definitely did your thing. I learned a lot, even like I said, just being there. It's still it's it's a very cool book, and. Uh, Thanks, you know. man. I'm it, it, I'm so glad that you that you dig it and that it uh, spoke to your experience. And um, hey, it's available on Amazon at your local library, at your local record store, um, on Goodreads, some other places, probably on eBay at this point, um, and maybe Rough Trade too. Still, I think so. You know, um, do yourself and me a favor and go to your local bookstore and ask if they have it because that makes everybody look great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, homegirl. <laughs> well, we'll we'll trade records at some point, and uh, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you somewhere. All right. I hope so. I hope so. Thanks for having me, Jim. To hear the exclusive Stark Reality playlist from Jessica Lipsky, go to episode fifty-six of Stark Reality on JasonCharles.net podcast network music channel, or go to Stark Reality playlists on Apple Podcasts. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net jasoncharles.net deep talk deep sounds oh wow that's deep very very deep